And open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. We're in a series on strength for today, hope for tomorrow. And this is the Word of God. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. The angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life and the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. Because it was, and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. When he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was, was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes on to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are yet to receive authority. They are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. They are of one mind. They hand over the power, their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose of being of one mind and handing over the royal beauty power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Then join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right, let's pray. Father, we're grateful that we have your word this morning, that it's true and that it's certain. So Father, help us understand this passage, Lord, that we admit is, is difficult. Uh, Father, help us to be encouraged and strengthened by it, we would pray. As your spirit works. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The city of Rome was a vast multicultural melting pot empire covering 193 square million, million miles, 40 modern nations with 65 million people, about one in four people on the face of the planet Earth in those days. It was a vast marketplace to trade both commerce and ideas. The Roman roads were built to transport their army that allowed people to move more freely and further than ever before in world history. 
Some of those roads are still in use, and if you've been to Bulgaria with the church, you've probably walked on them. Uh, for wealthy Romans, life was good. Uh, they lived in beautiful houses, uh, usually on the hills around the city of Rome, away from the noise and the smell of the city below. They enjoyed an extravagant lifestyle. They had luxurious furnishings. They wore beautiful clothes. Uh, they were surrounded by servants and slaves that uh, catered to their every whim and desire. A perverse standard of human sexuality ruled the day. And for the most part, for century Romans worshipped the emperor and other various gods, but not the God of the Bible. And so when we come to Revelation 17, the vertical of Rome has already been given by God himself as chapter 16 ends with that seventh and final bowl of God's wrath being poured out not only on Rome, but the whole world. As God cries out, it is done. And yet, you'll notice the book of Revelation has six more chapters. It's not over yet. We've got more to do. And in these next three chapters, 17 to 19, John gives us a closer look at how God pours out that final bowl of wrath. Today we'll see its impact on the glory that was Rome next week. We'll look at the day the music died, and then the third week at crying in the chapel. Uh, but nonetheless, coming to the chapel, I guess, whatever it was. Um, uh, but we'll watch today the impact on Rome and its rebellion against God. So what happens to the glory? Let's go to the text and see. First, just a couple of preliminary points to help us make sense of what's happening. One could call these chapters the story of two women. And it would not be the first time the Bible has used that motif. Uh, we also see it in the book of Proverbs. You recall there you are introduced to a wayward woman who is calling to the young men who have passed by, trying to seduce them in. And then you meet a woman, wisdom personified as a woman, who also calls out to the young men to give them biblical wisdom. Well, here we have two women. One's called the great prostitute. The second, we will see, is called the bride of Christ. And again, a huge contrast between two women. And as we look at this, remember, we are made to worship God. We are made to, for the purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But if one will not worship the true God, they will worship something or someone else. And in that sense, Rome or Babylon is a counterfeit church. It's what Satan offers so that people do not embrace the church, so people do not embrace the gospel. It's the worship of the godless world. Babylon seduces the world to worship the godless trinity uh, that we've already met, made up of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. The Old Testament illustrates that worship of other gods in terms of spiritual sexual morality. People turn into other than the true God for a relationship. So we're going to watch. You can see the church is attacked with promiscuity and power, persecution, seeking to destroy the church's purity, but using material, material prosperity, worldly power, and, and sex. And the struggle will be that the, the Roman Empire's emperor rather emperors attracted attracts great allegiance, not simply because of the power that he has, but because of the benefits that he offers. We've already seen. Emperor worship is, is politically expedient, but also economically required if one's to succeed in commerce in the Roman Empire. 
Modern society offers the same sort of, of seduction. And it makes the same demands to worship the state. We see that with today's uh, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, departments and corporations, along with their environmental, social, and governance ratings given to them to meet the demands of the state, to worship the state's godless agenda. Personally, we face those temptations in our culture. The sirens of the sexual uh, rebellion are, are calling out. The thirst for wealth, the first thirst for things, the thirst to be popular, to be powerful, to be an influencer, if you will, because as many affirmations on social media as we can. So with all that information dumped on you, uh, let's move then to verse 1. And the angel shows John the judgment of the great prostitute. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with, whose, with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Okay, so John sees a prostitute, she's sitting on many waters. Now in the passage, we're not left to wonder what this represents. Going down the page, we read that the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now the reference is also to Babylon. It's called the census on the waters. The, uh, Babylon sat on the Euphrates River, as did most of the great cities of, of the ancient world. Um, and, and given this is an angel pouring out a bowl of wrath, we can assume judgment, of course, against the glory that was Rome. You say, well, why do you say Rome instead of Babylon? Well, it also talks about being on seven hills. That's the city of Rome. Uh, and John's readers would know that because Rome was the greatest city of the world in their day. Uh, but keep this in mind. Rome and Babylon simply served to represent all the great cities of the world. Whether it's Ur, Nineveh, Babylon, or Rome, whether it's New York, Tokyo, London, Rio, Atlanta, all the great cities, all ancient cities, all modern-day towers of Babel seeking their own glory, where people seek to make a name for themselves as they did a Babel rather than to make much of God's name. This is modern-day humanity here. This is government longing for fame, independent of God. Why are the cities so attractive? Why are they described as a prostitute? Or as prostitutes try to seek passers-by on a dead-end trail, so the world tries to seek people away from God, to draw them away from God, away from the church, and onto a pathway that leads to destruction. See, on many waters, we're told that means tribes and language and peoples and nations. That points to the scope of their influence. Or just think of our nation. Think of the large cities, particularly on the coast, the influence they have on the rest of the country. And again, this is very graphic language, understandably, because it speaks of sexual morality with the kings of the earth. This Old Testament imagery about the allure of the world, what people crave in power and possessions and pleasure. And so we're told that people on earth are drunk with the wine of sexual immorality. And we're tempted to think this is just metaphorical. In one sense it is. But we have seen across history, 
that rebellion against God often takes the form of sexual immorality, beginning with the perverseness of Sodom and Gomorrah. Today, sexual deviancy, deviancy is the ultimate form of rebellion against God. At the root of the worship of abortion is claiming women have the same right as men not to be pregnant, seeking to allow people to engage in sexual activity outside of marriage without any kind of seeming consequence. And the slippery slope of our culture into a moral abyss has continued with the culture moving to dare to redefine marriage from what it's been since the dawn of time. Now the culture is trying to tell us that being male or female is just a social construct. And hence we have naked men wandering the, the showers, the girls' showers at YMCA's across the country. We have, we have the same in the Ivy League colleges where men roam freely. And the NCAA and the Ivy League colleges had the audacity to tell the women that complained that they're the ones that needed counseling if they didn't want naked men in their locker room. Friends, the world is an absolute denial of truth, of biological reality, and quite frankly, common sense. Sexual confusion in children is now the new battleground for the state to seek to strip parents of their parental rights. Marxist ideology that says children belong to the state and not their parents is not just in communist nations, it's here and it's among us. The world, this nation, is as drunk with the wine of sexual morality as first century Rome. Verse 3. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. It had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual morality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So John's taken in the wilderness to observe this, and we've seen in Revelation that the wilderness is a safe place for the people of God. And as he looks at the woman, now she's sitting on, on the, the, the beast, now, it's the same beast we met back in chapter 13. It's a scarlet beast. It's red, identifying him with the dragon, with Satan. He has blasphemous names for God written on him. Those names show that he defies God's glory and honor and instead claims he's to be worshipped instead of God. And John looks at the woman. She allures people with her lavish clothing, with her wealth, with her splendor. She turns heads. She's a seducer of, of the world's affections. She has that gold cup in her hand. And it looks so attractive. But we read that inside it's full of abominations and destruction. And perhaps the greatest abomination in the world today is the quest to make individuals seem large. And God seemed small or non-existent. And to drink from that cup is to drink destruction. Again, the woman represents the power of the state, the power of human government. The power of the state brings wealth, but also brings spiritual adultery against God. 
we're warned here even of what it is as the ancient Romans, the, the prostitutes in those days wore their name in ribbons across their foreheads. So this woman wears Babylon the Great, the great city from Babel that rebelled against God, the mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. Again, it's the great cities of the world and our nation that are in view here. But John deals with something far more pervasive, expansive, and influential uh, than just ancient cities. He's unfolding a controlling influence of humanity that has the power to turn uh, men's hearts away from God and toward idolatry. From the Creator to the creation. The worship of nature that was so common in antiquity has returned. It's in full bloom in the world today and lies behind their quest for your gas stove. All right? Uh, Rome, like ancient Babylon, grew prosperous. Phil Newton gives just a, a, a succinct description of it that I, I want to read it to you. He writes that they indulged their senses in food, drink, art, sports, music, entertainment, gratuitous violence in the Colosseum, and whatever else they desired. Brothels, harlots, and temple prostitutes were common sights. They lived with the attitude, it's all about me and my happiness and my pleasures. Friends, the great heart lives on today. Has there been a time that rivals the indulgence and sensuality of every sort that we see in our day? The vast majority of people in our country alone are more interested in satisfying their senses, gratifying their pleasures, and indulging their desires than they are in following the crucified and risen Lord. The autos of our day have different temples in the first century. Sports stadiums and arenas, theaters and clubs, lakes and rivers, concerts and festivals, shopping malls and computer screens. It's not that these things are necessarily evil in themselves. The problem is when they become the sources of idolatry that turn our hearts away from the living God or numb us to our need for the Lord. See, that's the spirit of the harlot. And clearly the greatest abomination then next is that the kingdoms of the world are not just drunk with sexual morality. But we read they've also become drunk with the blood of martyrs. The most notorious crime of all. What's in view is the persecution of the church and the global persecution of the church that continues to grow in our day. So now we have message one then that he comes. And that's a Judgment. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? See, John marvels at the attractiveness of the woman. He's astonished by it. And he sees how the world is is attracted by her. Um, We're shocked by the sexual perversity of our world that seems to attract so many. We don't understand. But are we surprised when, when Babylon is Babylon? And acts like Babylon? And the people that live in Babylon are drawn there? Uh, Without God, and without His Word, without His Spirit, we too would be drawn to worship Babylon. It's hard to resist the call. And we must actively do that. Then we learn more. I tell you the mystery of the woman... And of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her, the beast you saw was and is not. It's about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. 
and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. And this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings. If I move him fallen, one is, the other is not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. It's for the beast that was and is not, it's an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. All right, just like in chapter 13, the beast has these, these seven uh, uh, horns and the, the, the ten heads, um, seven heads and ten horns, um, and sit on those seven hills. The symbolism is there. And you're going to find people spend a lot of time trying to identify who these kings and kingdoms are. All right? Uh, they try counting the Roman emperors. They have to decide which one do you start with. Do you start with Julius Caesar? Do you start with the first one to use the title emperor? Or do you, do you shorten the ones who don't reign for very long? What about the kingdoms? Which kingdoms do you include? Uh, it depends on which century you live in. Quite frankly, you, where, where you start counting, you have to add in, subtract, take away, um, uh, and so on. Uh, what I'm going to suggest to you is trying to identify those as a fruitless endeavor. All right? Let me ask you this question. How many heads are there? Seven. This side did good. Come on this side. Y'all get, get this. Now get the next one. What is the number of completeness in Revelation? Seven. The number ten we've seen is the same thing. It's completeness. So what I'm going to suggest is that these seven, these ten, are the completeness of opposition of world leaders and nations to God across history. John's point is not to get us to spend all our time trying to figure out who the emperor or the king was that he's talking about. He wants us to see that humanity rebels against God in every age. Psalm 2 tells us that. That's what's taking place here. It's an ongoing rebellion against God and against his king, King Jesus, whom Psalm 2 tells us he's installed on his holy hill. The point is that these kings of the world are gathered together in their support of Satan, to oppose the kingdom of God. Friends, the kings of this earth hate the church and do not look for support for the church from our own government. And notice the beast tries to imitate Jesus. You recall that Jesus is described back in chapter 1 as the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Now here the beast is the one who was, is not and is to come. What's the point? Well, the point is this. The beast power, Satan's power, was crushed at the cross. And so at that moment, he was not. He is not because of that. And while Jesus will reign, the beast will be sentenced to the great abyss forever. Yes, he is. He will be, but he will go, but says, to the pit. And that's what says stage for the stage for verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Now we're not going to see the details of that battle until we get over to chapter 19. 
But we're assured now of the outcome. Jesus, the Lamb of God, conquers. He's King of kings. He's Lord of lords. And so as we perhaps sometimes wonder at Satan's power here, God steps in to assure us of two things. First, He wins. He wins. And second, we are chosen and faithful. We are loved as we sang earlier before the dawn of time. Our names, our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life from the foundation of the world. Uh, our, uh, God's sovereignty over our salvation is based on His goodness and His grace and His mercy. It's not anything we earn. It's not what we deserve. It's not about performance. It's what He does for us in Jesus Christ at the cross. No one ever did care for us like Jesus. And so we sang, Jesus, I do now receive Him. More than all in Him I find. He hath granted me forgiveness. I am His and He is mine. That's where our identity is. It's in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He's with me to the end. And then we read, and the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and hand over the royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. What he's saying is this, in the, in the turmoil of the world's kingdoms being defeated by the Lamb, they in turn, back, turn on each other. The kings of this world, who as David Strain puts it, extend the Babylon, reach of Babylon in every age and every land. They're ultimately parasitic. Their system is self-destructive. Sins like that, it appears to have wisdom, but as the beast and the horns and the prostitute eventually learn, all who set themselves up in alliance against the final claims of King Jesus are going to be defeated. So what about us? The worldly woman who seeks to seduce the young man in the book of Proverbs is the same woman we see in Revelation 17, seeking to seduce the world around us. And she's an alluring presence to be sure. The church always finds itself tempted to compromise with the spirit of the age to fit into the world. We as individuals are tempted to compromise as we hear the siren sounds of the world that calls us, that woos us. Friends, we've got to withstand the temptations of the world. We are called to live differently. Holiness really does matter. Walking by the light of God's Word really does matter. And so do mercy and grace when we stumble and fall. Grace and mercy that God always extends to us. That's why we're going to sing in a moment that hymn, He Leadeth Me, to remind us that Jesus, God, shepherds us through this fallen world. A world that's on the path to self-destruction. 
And friends, we know this. But if you're like me, I confess I look maybe too much and listen too much to the news. And I get dismayed. It really looks like evil is going to triumph. But can I tell you, it does not win. God wins. The Lamb triumphs. And that's the proclamation of the gospel we must make today. And in all the days ahead, until Jesus returns or calls us home. The poet Robert Pollock wrote about fellow poet Lord Byron. Lord Byron lived a rather promiscuous, rebellious, sin-saturated life. It ended when he was just 30 years old, 36 years old. He was quite wealthy. Uh, he was famous. And here's what Pollock wrote about him. He said he drank every cup of joy, heard every trumpet of fame. He drank early, deeply drank, drank drafts that common millions might have quenched. Then died of thirst because there was no more to drink. You see, one can drink all that the world has to offer. The woman, the beast, the dragon. But it will never be enough. All that someone had pointed Lord Byron to Jesus. To the living water. And he never would have thirsted again. What are we drinking? Father, we thank You for the hope we have that God wins, that You win, that the Lamb triumphs, that the King of kings and Lord of lords is Jesus. And He triumphs over Satan, whether we call Him the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, the great prostitute. Father, we thank You that evil ultimately turns on itself. We thank You that we have the hope of eternity. So, Father, we thank You for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord because of what He did for us on the cross. And that there He crushed the head of Satan so that He is not. And that, Father, one day He will be destroyed in the eternal pit of destruction. So, Father, help us, Lord. Help us to resist the calls of the world. To resist the siren calls of the great prostitute. And, Father, to walk by Your Word Guided by Your Spirit, we would pray. If there's anybody here that doesn't know the joy of knowing Jesus, of drinking of the water of life, Father, of finding hope and eternity in Him, Lord, today show them Your Son and draw them to Him, we pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.